Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Exhaling Words podcast, the language podcast where I just sit and talk for an indefinite period of time, and hopefully you listen. For those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron, and I will be your host forever. (laughs) And yeah, I just want to start this episode by thanking everybody. Um, I'm recording this episode the day that I launched the podcast and I've gotten really, really, really great feedback and so many people who have been really supportive. And I just want to thank you all for that and um, just let you know that I'm excited and I hope you stay with me and continue to enjoy whatever content I put out. So what do I want to talk about today? I want to talk about the last 16 years of my life. (laughs) Um, So by far the most common question that I get um, on the internet, besides how do I learn languages, is how did I learn languages? How did I get to where I am? What languages have I studied? You know, and, and, and what experience do I have? Now, I'm going to be honest, I'm 29 years old, and I've been doing this since I was 13, which I know there are people out there who've been doing it way longer. But 16 years is a lot to summarize, especially because Mine wasn't like I just studied Spanish for five years and then I just studied French for five years or something. I easily at any point in time was studying, you know, between three to ten languages. And I don't say that to get some sort of clout or credit, but just more to explain the complexity of this. So I'm going to try to put this all out there in kind of a concise way. It's going to be very cliff notes or cliffs notes whatever the actual title of it is and um i'm sure i can get into more detail later in later episodes if people want to know stories about specific languages or specific experiences that i have so let's start i was raised in a small town in a rural part of the eastern united states in the mid-atlantic and my town was legally monolingual Now, that doesn't mean that it was illegal to speak English or to speak a language outside of English. And it doesn't mean that there weren't people who didn't speak English. It just means that the town government and any businesses that operated inside of the town were not required to provide translation services to anyone. Um, Now, even that fact aside, it was still a relatively homogenous community. It was a lot of white people, a lot of English speakers, conservative, rural religious white people. Um, We did have, you know, small minority communities and there were people of colors and and, and, and immigrant communities around, but they were definitely in the vast minority um, and they didn't get a lot of representation. So as I got into like middle school and high school and entered my teen years, I really, I just, I just wanted to know what more was out there. And, um, I really wanted to explore that, and I talked in my last episode about some of the reasons I got into languages and language learning, so I don't want to get into that today, but the first language that I ever really studied formally, um, or really at all, was Spanish. Um, I I had gotten, like, one or two small ASL lessons, just, you know, basic signs like banana and love um, when I was younger, and my two older sisters studied French in school, and so I learned a few things here and there from them, but really, like, my first foreign language journey was with Spanish at the age of 13 or when I was going into eighth grade we had the opportunity to take some high school classes and get high school credit and Spanish was one of them and I was like I have to do this 
And, and I was that way the whole year. I would go to my professor and be like, what more can I do? How else can I, you know, use this? How can I immerse myself? What else is there? And she was great. And she would be like, you know, there's music, there's film, there's all this stuff. And because I was a musical person, I like threw myself into music. And I mean, like, I listened to everything. You know, I listened to stuff that you expect from a 13-year-old, like La Oreja de Van Gogh or, you know, Rake or somebody. But then I like listen to a whole bunch of Cheyenne, um, which is, you know, what, like, middle-aged housewives listen to, but it's, it's fine, it's fine, um, and I loved it, and so when I went on to high school, I, you know, kept studying Spanish, and the church that I grew up in, um, used to do missions trips to South America, so I've been to Peru four times, I worked as an interpreter during those trips, I worked as a volunteer interpreter, um, including simultaneous interpretation for a week. That was awful. That's a whole episode um, uh, here in the U.S. Um, and so Spanish was really sort of like my primary language during those years. Um, after maybe a year or so of Spanish, I was like, I need to see what else is out there. I need to do more. Um, and so I obviously delved into French because my sisters had studied it, and I started teaching myself French. Um, I taught myself maybe my first two or three years of high school French, and then I did some independent study work with a professor. And then um, I also got really big into Portuguese, into Brazilian Portuguese. Um, there was a website back then. It no longer exists. If you go on the internet now and type in sharedtalk.com, it takes you to Rosetta Stone. But it used to be like this forum chat website where you could meet people who spoke other languages and were learning languages and you could do language exchange with them. And it was great. I loved it. And so I met a guy named Marcelo who was uh who's from sao paulo and uh he spoke spanish and he was learning like french and english or something and uh, so he taught me portuguese in spanish which was awesome to do um i also like totally continued with you know just exploration i oh my gosh i racked up so many library finds because being from a low-income family my parents couldn't just buy me all the language books that i wanted so I would go to the library and I would check out things and I would order books from other branches and have them shipped and then I would keep them too long and then I would, you know, have to pay all my hard-earned money from, you know, my after-school job to pay off my library fines. But I ordered, you know, Mandarin books, Japanese books, um, Arabic, Russian, German. I did a lot of stuff, mostly kind of like what we think of as like the big common, like this is what most people study languages. Um, I hadn't really gotten into things like, oh, let's do Tajik or Kazakh or something. But yeah, I explored a lot and I really just wanted to see what was out there. So when I got towards the end of high school and I started looking at college, well, I either wanted to be a musician or something else. Well, mostly a musician, but my mother told me I would end up poor and penniless Little did she know that academia wasn't going to do a whole lot better for me. Um, and she told me that I should do something with languages because I loved them so much and I agreed. So I prepared to go to college and major in a couple languages. And I was really into like China at the time and East Asian history and culture. And um, which again is very vague in general and an overgeneralization, but I was 17. Um, and... I, I'm a total pacifist to this day, and so I didn't want to work for a government entity, but I thought maybe like a, a UN NGO, like UNICEF or UNESCO. And so I was like, what are the, what are the UN languages? English, Spanish, French, Chinese, um, 
Russian, and Arabic. And so I was like, well, let me do English, Spanish, French, and Chinese. And then eventually I'll get to Russian and Arabic. Not really thinking about how the UN actually works and, you know, the need for other languages. Um, and so I went to college and I went and met, like, my freshman advisor. And I was like, can I major in Spanish, Chinese, and French, please? And he just sort of looks at me and he's like, well, I guess we could figure that out. Um, he was a very nice man. But my university, University of Pittsburgh is where I started. It's not where I finished, though. They had these learning communities where you could take three classes or two classes in your freshman seminar with the same group of people, and they were all, like, themed around something. And so I remember getting a letter in the mail, maybe a month before school or something, telling us about this. And it was like, pick one that you might want to join if you're interested. And so I'm looking through the list, and I'm like, do they have languages? Do they have languages? And I'm looking at it, and it's like, they have... Italian. Oh, crap. I'm doing Spanish and French. And then I scroll down the list some more. They have, oh, no, that's Japanese. I'm doing Mandarin. And then I scroll down some more, and they have Arabic. And I'm like, well, that looks cool. Um, they had one on, like, the European Union and politics, and there was going to be a field trip to the UN where you could meet EU leaders. And I signed up for that. Not soon enough, apparently. And I'm still a little salty about it because to this day, I still have not been to the UN and toured it. So maybe that needs to be a 2021 goal. Anyways, I ended up getting into the Arabic community and I just sort of thought, okay, well, I'm going to major in Spanish, Chinese, and French, but it wouldn't hurt to start learning Arabic some. I was so wrong. Um, not that it hurt, but I just fell in love with Arabic. You know, I, I always point out to people like, I love languages, I do. I really do, unlike anything else, and in a way I cannot explain to people, languages just speak literally to my soul. But honestly, even a language like Spanish or French, which were like my two first foreign languages, they're a part of my life now because I speak them at such a high level that I don't think about it, I just use them, I read books, I, you know, I, I read the news, I listen to music, it, 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 I just don't think about it anymore. But anything else really doesn't stick around in my life for too long. I go through phases where, you know, I'm going to spend a couple of years doing Farsi and then I stop. And then I spend a couple of years doing Russian and then I stop. Arabic has been my life for almost 12 years now. Um, there have been some phases where I've backed away from it, but it has been a big part of my life for the majority of that time, which really says something to the level of love that I have for the Arabic language. And there will be several, several episodes devoted to different aspects of the Arabic language. I'm very sure of that. So I fell in love with Arabic. I dropped Mandarin and I really focused on Arabic. I had personal things happen and switched schools and whatever. But that's really where I ended up like for college was I did Arabic. I did French. Um, I didn't do a degree in Spanish. Again, personal reasons. I was, I was kind of an arrogant jerk and I was a freshman in college and I spoke better Spanish than a lot of the seniors who were Spanish majors. And I just felt like this is a waste of my time. And rather than taking that as an opportunity to push myself even further, especially with the help of some professors who wanted me to do that and were really, you know, supportive of me, I had one professor who pissed me off so bad one time because of things he said to me. And now I look back and I go, oh, wow, I was an idiot. Like, he was so supportive. He saw my potential and he had all these great thoughts and things he wanted to share with me. And I was just like, why are you being mean to me? I'm better than everyone else. But this is what happens when you're 18 or 19 years old and you just, you're a jerk and you think you're better than people. Luckily, I've grown up. So I ended up doing my bachelor's degree in Arabic and French. 
but I feel like that oversimplifies it because it's okay. I have a bachelor's degree in Arabic and French, but during those years, I still studied Portuguese. I still did some Spanish. I, you know, dabbled in other languages. I had my Swedish obsession during some of those years, and again later during graduate school, I did a lot of Hebrew. My Arabic professor was from Palestine, and、um, again, being a pacifist, I and and not liking all of the heated debate around politics, I really just thought. Let me learn Hebrew and try to see both sides and read literature and understand everyone's perspective.、Um, and so I did like I did Hebrew, I did some Turkish, I did、um, a little bit of Hungarian here and there. I practiced with Russian some more, and so I just sort of like kind of just did things in the evenings and weekends, depending on what I sort of was interested in during those years. When I lived in Jordan in 2012, which is not quite the end of college, but close, I finished my 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 bachelor's degree in 2013. I lived in Jordan in 2012, and we had to write a research paper. I look back at it now and go, "That is the worst ten pages of Arabic I have ever written." But at the time, I was very proud of it. After three years of Arabic writing, ten pages about linguistics, I was I was astounded that I could do it, and it was hard. But the topic that really interested me was Arabic's contact with neighboring languages. And my first inclination was Hebrew because of having studied Hebrew, and because of my interest in Palestine. That didn't go well, <laughs> because since since Hebrew and Arabic are related, sometimes it's really hard to see: is this alone? Is this influence? Is this just a native Semitic root that got brought back during Hebrew's revitalization? You know, it it got complicated and political. Whereas Persian is an Indo-European language. And so, when you look at Persian and Arabic, it's far easier to be like, "Oh, that's from Arabic. Oh, that's influenced from Arabic, or that's Persian's influence back on Arabic." And so, it was much easier to sort of approach, especially for somebody like me who didn't really have formal training in linguistics. So, I wrote that paper, and I started studying Persian. And I lived in Jordan at the time, and I was like, "Well, I'm here. Might as well go to Iran or Israel, one or the other." Except for that was spring of 2012, which, if any of you remember,、um, Iran and Israel were like lobbing insults and threats at each other left and right.、Um, there's still a lot of threatening back and forth between the two governments, but it was really bad in 2012. And my aunt,、um, who's always been supportive of my education and has read like every application and essay I've ever written. Called me one day while I was thinking about doing this and like looking at how to get an Iranian visa or you know how to、uh, get an Israeli visa and stuff, and she was like, "Look, I don't care what it costs. I want you back in the U.S. I would just feel safer,、um, or I would feel better knowing that you were safe here." And so I started looking at programs in the U.S. and I found Arizona State University has a center within it called the Malikian Center, which works on like post-Soviet spaces. And they have a summer program called the Critical Languages Institute. So they taught Persian, but the way they did elementary Persian was they taught Tajik first, and then they taught Iranian Persian. And then in the intermediate and advanced classes, you could do Tajik or you could do Iranian. And I was like, well, I mean, that'll be cool. I already read Cyrillic, so why not?、Um, and so I ended up going there, and that's really where I credit my interest in Central Asia. I had been interested in Iran and interested in sort of moving eastward with my studies, in terms of Arabic's influence on languages, sort of to the east of it, as、um, as Arabic spread and Islam spread in that direction. But I hadn't really looked at Central Asia that seriously or in depth in any way, shape, or form. So 
I went to ASU and to CLI and I studied Tajik and then we also studied some Iranian Persian and I really just I don't know I I don't want to keep saying the phrase I fell in love but I did I just I really 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 enjoyed it and I wasn't really ready com- to commit to doing post-Soviet spaces and doing just like Tajikistan and moving into you know Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, whatever And I was really interested still like in using the Perso-Arabic script and stuff. And so I kind of compromised with myself and I started researching more about Afghanistan. And I was like, oh, I could learn Pashto and they speak Persian. And there's a lot of cool history here. And so I started doing that. I did self-study in like some Dari, which is Afghan dialect. I did self-study in Pashto. And then in 2013, I went to Indiana University and I took an intermediate intermediate Dari course there. And my Dari professor helped me with my Pashto sometimes. Yeah, that was 2013. And then I went to graduate school. And graduate school was sort of like a whole separate phase again. Because when I went to graduate school, I knew that I wanted to do like historical linguistics, language contact, and like history. And I didn't really, I guess, expect that to take me away from modern languages. I mean, obviously it makes sense that you're doing historical stuff, you're working with dead languages or classical forms that nobody speaks, but I didn't really think that plan through, and suddenly I'm sitting in classes, and I'm doing classical Armenian, and I'm doing Middle Persian, and, you know, classical Arabic and classical Persian, and I'm not using or studying a language that I can use and speak with people anymore, and it really, like, was weird for me. One, it was just a dr- like a jarring experience. And then two, I don't know, I felt very disconnected. It was kind of hard for me. And so I, I made up for it by studying more languages, as one does. So a few months into my master's degree, I was talking to my advisor. And I was asking him, I was like, well, I'm, I'm not really sure where to go from here. Because I had to start doing PhD applications. And... I told him, I was like, I'm enjoying what we're doing with the Middle Persian and the classical Armenian. And I think I want to do more like in the historically Iranian world. But traditionally, I've been more interested in like Central Asia. And the stuff that I'm doing with you now is more like Iran and the Caucasus. And I'm not really sure how to balance all this because I enjoy both sides of it. And he was like, well, what do you mean like Central Asia? And I was like, I'm really interested in Pashto and Afghanistan. And he was like, okay, go home, open up Google, and Google the word accession, O-S-S-E-T-I-A-N, accession. I was like, okay, why not? So I went home, Googled it. Accession is a language spoken in North and South Ossetia. Um, South Ossetia was part of the cause of the 2008 Georgian-Russian War, along with Abkhazia. And it is an Iranian language, and it is an Eastern Iranian language, which means that it's related to Pashto and Wahi and Yagnobi and the Palmyr languages. And I was like, oh, what? a language in the Caucasus is related to Pashto? What? And, I mean, the short story is ancient Scythians, or at this point, they were probably almost, they were in their transition phase between being called Scythians and Alans. Um, migrated back from Central Asia, uh, north of the Caspian, and some of them migrated down into the Caucasus and settled there, while others continued on into Europe. Um, We have archaeological evidence of them being in Hungary. And, um, yeah, they were speakers of an Iranian language. And 
I don't know, it just sort of clicked for me. I was like, oh, this is my dissertation research. This is, you know, comparison of language contact of Eastern Iranian languages and how, you know, contact with Russian and Georgian and, 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 and local languages from, from like the Caucasian Sprachbund um, has affected accession and how Pashto's influence from, you know, even from modern forms of Persian and a lot of loan words from Persian and Arabic. And then with, um, you know, historical, you know, Indo-Aryan languages, like how that's affected the development of Pashto. And so I was like, this is it. I found it, guys. And then I got into graduate school and my professor had to go on sabbatical my first year. And so all that kind of got postponed and I just kept studying languages. I did, you know, some German, I did Russian. Um, they were all sort of in preparation for graduate work because he was like, well, you're going to have to be able to read articles in German and Russian. Um, so you might as well study them. And in the meantime, you know, also study like Persian. And so I did classical Persian literature, classical Persian pro like prose and poetry. I did a course in Russian. I did a course in German. I did like a survey course in um, old Iranian languages. And then um, I finished my first year and I was sitting there kind of going, well, what am I supposed to do now? I had summer funding. My professor was still on sabbatical. I wasn't really sure what to do. And so I emailed my professor and I was like, so I have this funding and they tell me I get to do whatever I want with it can I go to Afghanistan and study Pashto? And he's like, um, I really don't think that would be a good idea. And I double checked with my Dari Pashto professor and I was like, what do you think? And he goes, right now it's probably not safe for Americans. So that was next. <laughs> and then I was like, well, can I go to Tajikistan? I found a, like one Pashto professor in all of Dushanbe. And he was like, well, maybe. I was like, okay, so what do you think I should, I, like, I should do? And he goes, well, there's a lot of good like European summer schools on linguistics, and I really think maybe you should beef up some of your historical linguistics. And I was like, okay, that's fair. So I ended up going to Leiden University's um, summer school in Indo-European linguistics, but it only lasts two weeks. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do for the rest of my summer? And he goes, well, what else do you want to do? And I had come into contact with a lot of Aussie's sessions on Facebook, and people put me in contact with a professor at Tbilisi State University who taught a session. And she was so excited about an American student coming and studying, like she wasn't going to charge me anything. And at the same time, there was also an Iranian linguistics conference in Tbilisi that year. And so I was like, what if I go to Georgia? I'll go to Georgia. I'll attend this conference. I'll go to Leiden. I'll come back and I'll study a session. He was like, okay, that's fine. So I did that. And then while I was in Georgia, I studied Georgian and Armenian. And I spoke Russian all the time. And I also had a session classes. And then I started studying Finnish for a little while because I had met a Finnish colleague at the conference who was interested in Iranian Uralic contact, which sounded fascinating to me. So I started Finnish and I got back on the Hungarian train. And I don't know if you're catching a pattern here, but there's a pattern here. And it is a pattern that I cannot stick to a single language at a time, let alone even three. So I came back to the U.S. and I started classes again. I did Old Persian. I did Younger Avestan. I did Sanskrit. And in the meantime, I kept trying to justify studying other things like Russian or I took a course in Chinese history because I was studying pre-Islamic Central Asia. And like one of the people groups I was studying is a people group known as the, I, I don't know what we call them in English. And I don't know the tones in Chinese, but it's Yuezhir. Uh, it's Y-U-E-Z-H-I. And, uh, and Sogdians and stuff, and they had had contact with China. And so I was like, oh, maybe I should learn Chinese. 
So I picked up Chinese again. Um, I tried to, you know, justify whatever language I could because I couldn't control myself in a lot of ways. And so this went on for another year or so. And a lot of other things happened in my life, a lot of personal things, a lot of mental health issues, professionally in school, as well as things in my personal life. And I had to take a step back and I went on a medical leave of absence for my mental health. And then that just sort of lasted and I didn't return to graduate school. I got a job teaching Arabic. I ran an Arabic program for two years. I restructured their curriculum. I taught all levels of Arabic and I loved it. And it made me learn more about teaching and learn more about Arabic and fall in love with Arabic even more. But now not having the structure of graduate school and sort of these goals of, well, you need to learn this language by this time because you have to do research and all these things. If I thought I was crazy before, like I went crazy then. I mean, we, I, I did everything. I bought Korean books. I bought Thai books. I, you know, I pulled out my, my, my old Mandarin books. I bought Japanese books. And then like I would get sort of pulled back into Central Asian and Western Asian, even some South Asian spaces. And I'm like pulling, you know, Urdu books off the university library shelves and like all these things. And it just, again, I just spiraled. And when I, even, even after I left teaching, and I started translating privately and teaching privately, I don't want to say it got worse. I think I got more distracted from what has ultimately felt like my final goal. I got more structured about it. I would come up with reasons and I would come up with study plans and focus, at least for a couple months on a language or a region. You know, like I did several months of just doing like Balkan languages and I did Hungarian and Romanian and BCS and Albanian and stuff and some Greek, you know, um, I structured myself to do stints on working on things like Sicilian and Maltese and justifying it around interest in um, the medieval Mediterranean. But it was still, it just still all felt very distant from where I should be or what felt more like home in a way. That's not the best phrase for it, but it's the phrase I have right now. And so recently over the past year, I've taken some time to step back and look at and go, what really should I be working on? Not just from a professional standpoint, but like, what do I love? What do I always love? What do I always come back to? I always come back to Arabic. I always come back to Persian. I always come back to Armenian. I always come back to uh, like parts of Central Asia, like Tajik or Uzbek, or um, recently I've been getting into like Turkmen and Kazakh. You know, I always come back to Pashto. And, and I really sort of came to terms with the fact that like, again, not the best phrase, but this is my home. It's not my home, but this is where I feel comfortable linguistically, and it's a region of the world that I really love. I mean, I still think my MO in a lot of ways is lack of self-control in studying every language I feel like on whatever whim. I mean, even now, I say I have self-control and I'm working on Western and Central Asia. Go to my Instagram. I'm also studying Malayalam and Telugu, which are both Dravidian languages spoken in Southern India, and I'm studying, you know, Irish and Scottish because I'm Irish and Scottish and I thought it would be cool. So there's still a lot of randomness there. But yeah, I mean, that's in a short period of time, that is the last 16 years of my life and all of the languages I've studied and not even all of them, to be honest. If we're counting everything constructed, dead, living, multiple dialects, like we're looking at something like a hundred languages. I don't say that to try to gain clout or anything. I just, if anything, I say it to like shame myself. I mean, where is the self-control, one, and two, 
you know, out of those hundred languages, how many languages do I have a decent proficiency in? Like, you know, let's say B1, B2 or higher. You know, if we're saying C1, C2, we're looking at four or five. B1, B2, we can tack on maybe another four to that, which is still, you know, nice numbers wise. But I don't have the same sort of depth of fluency and understanding in a lot of these languages as I do in, say, Spanish or French or Arabic. And for me personally, that's something I really do care about. As much as I love the experimentation and the curiosity and, and trying everything, I really do care about depth and understanding culture and history and nuance. And so, yeah. Anyways, um, that is the past 16 years of my life in 20 minutes or so, or maybe 30 minutes. I'm sure that in coming episodes, I will have time to talk about specific stories I mean, even just something like Arabic, that's several episodes. I could talk about my history with Arabic for a whole hour and then, you know, spend a whole year just talking about the things I love about Arabic, you know, while something like studying a session would just be one episode, but that's still a whole episode. So trying to put 16 years of uncontrollable, you know, ASD driven language learning in, into, into 30 minutes, that's kind of hard. So... I hope that that sheds some light on on some of this for or whoever's questioning or wondering sort of what my background is or how I came to all of this. So as always, if you're interested in getting in touch with me in some way, um, I'm on all major social media, meaning Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook as Polyglot Aaron, all one word. Aaron is spelled E-R-I-N. I'm most active on Instagram, so that's where you have the best chance of getting in touch with me. But those are all the options. If you're not a social media person, but you like podcasts, um, by all means, email me, polyglotaaron at gmail.com. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me just talk for another 30 minutes today, and I will see you all next time.